Today we're continuing a sermon series called I Undeserved This, uh, but we're also continuing a two-week mini-series, which is inside that series, on Luke chapter 15. Last week we walked through Jesus' parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and so today we get the final parable of that chapter. Uh, This story that we're going to study today has traditionally been called the parable of the prodigal son. Maybe the most famous parable that Jesus told besides the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, But I don't think the parable of the prodigal son is correctly named. Because the word prodigal just means extremely extravagant spending. And it's a reference to the fact that in the story, the younger son takes his father's wealth and spends it on wild living. But that is by no means the main point of the parable, and so to call this story the parable of the son who is prodigal is, well, missing the main point. And so maybe there's some wisdom in seeing it as the third in a parable of losts, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Except if you follow the story, you'll find out there are two movements or two acts, you might say, focusing on two brothers, And so it's not really just the parable of the lost son, it's the parable of the lost sons. So whether you call it the parable of the lost son, or as the New International Version calls it, the parable of the two sons, you have to remember this isn't just a story about one boy, but about two brothers. And it makes sense. If you remember the context from last week, we talked about how Jesus tells a parable to tell two different messages to two different groups of people based on their posture towards him. And so once again, He tells this parable to diagnose those two groups and give them exactly what they need to hear. This parable today, the parable of the two sons, if I had to pick one story in the Bible to give you the essence of Christianity, this might be it. In fact, if you went through Faith Builders with me to become a member of our congregation, this is the very first story I tell you. Because I believe it perfectly epitomizes the message of Christianity. And so if you get this story, you get Christianity. But the truth is, many people don't. They may know the storyline. They may understand what happens. They may even intellectually get the point from Jesus. But they need to be rewired. Like have a new operating system installed on their computer. If you've ever done this, you've switched from a Mac to a PC or or vice versa, or maybe even just switched in an older system of technology from like a wired landline phone to a cell phone or from paper mail to email or whatever the case may be, you understand that when a new system comes into your life, there's a learning curve and it requires you to adjust, to think differently. And while you may be doing the same tasks, you do them with a a different operating system. This parable is to diagnose whether you have an operating system of grace or an operating system of law. And so the big idea, if you're taking notes with us today, is that grace gives us God. Grace gives us God. I'm going to read the text in parts as we go through the sermon today. First, Jesus will, uh, Luke will set the context for us, and then he'll begin to tell us about Jesus' parable. This is Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property 
between them. So Jesus tells a parable about two sons and a father. The younger of those sons comes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate, my share of the inheritance. And if that doesn't immediately make your blood boil against the younger son, then maybe you don't understand what he's asking. See, in their culture, like many of you do, they had, they had wills or inheritances that would be given to the, the sons of the family. The oldest son would get a double portion from all of his brothers, but every son would get something from the father. The problem is you don't get an inheritance until you have your father die, right? And so what the younger son is saying to his father is, Father, I want what you're going to give me when you die. In fact, you're better to me dead than alive. A massively offensive thing for this son to say to his father. Now, you might think that seems a little bit hyperbolic, but it's actually exactly what the text says says, um, in in the words, his property or his estate. Uh, The the text says that he divides property, but the word there is actually the Greek word bios. Even if you don't read Greek, you can see letters that are familiar in that word, right? It's the word from where we get our concept of biology or the study of life. So when the the father divides his property among his his, uh, sons, he's actually dividing his life. That's what the text says. We don't really get this because we aren't so tied to a specific plot of land on the ground, but in their culture, it was huge to have land. Remember, in the Old Testament, God says to his people, I'm going to give you land, and that's one of the most attractive parts of God's promise. But it's not just that he gave up part of who he was, but that he had to divide it. There was a whole bunch of work that had to go into this. He had to sever the land, and then he had to sell part of the land, and he was never going to get that back. His value as a person in the culture was diminished because of what this younger son asked him to do. The rabbis tell us that if a son came to his father and said such a thing as this, the father had every right to at least verbally abuse him, if not even physically abuse him, for asking something so rash. But that's not what happens, right? The father just does it. He divides the land and gives the wealth to the younger son. The text continues, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him out to the fields to feed pigs. So the younger son takes the money and he spends it in terrible ways. He takes all the goodness of the father and squanders it. And while the text doesn't tell us exactly what wild living is, I'm sure you can imagine. But where it ends him up is feeding pigs with no money and no resources And not only are pigs gross, but in his culture, that would have been unclean ceremonially. It would have separated him from the body of believers who were worshiping. So he was not just without a job of any sort of consequence, without any money, without any friends, but he was also separate from God. And the text continues to tell us that that even though he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, no one gave him anything. 
he was completely alone. He had had everything with his father and his brother in his home, and, and he threw it all away. You can imagine what he felt like as he realized what his life had been and what his life was now. It was a disaster. Everything had gone differently than he expected. He may be expected to be happy. He may be expected to be in control. He may be expected to make it, but he was none of those things, right? Well, the text continues. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So the text tells us he comes to his senses. But that's maybe a little bit misleading because he comes to his senses in a certain sense, if you will. And it's shown to us by that last phrase of what he says to himself. I'm going to go to my father and ask him to make me like one of his hired servants. I mean, up to that point, his confession sounds pretty good, right? I have sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. We use those words that he says in some of our confessions of sins here in worship. Right? We are no longer worthy to be called your child. We say that, right? I'm a poor, miserable sinner by my fault, by my own grievous fault. We, sound, we say these words, but what makes this planned confession a little bit different is that last phrase, make me like one of your hired servants. See, for that son, he was making a confession with an expectation. When he came to his senses, he didn't realize so much that he had hurt his father or or gone against his father's will or embarrassed his father in front of the community. What it means when he says it came to his senses is he figured out his life wasn't that good and he figured he could make it better by going back to his father. When he says, make me like one of your hired servants, what he's asking for is a job. He's thinking to himself, this life isn't good. There's a life I probably can get that's better. And in a sense, you could say he hasn't changed at all. Wasn't that exactly what he was thinking when he asked his father for the inheritance? I don't really like life here. Give me the money so that I can find something better. Even though his words were right, His heart wasn't right. The hired servant would have been the lowest class of person in the household. There were the parents and then the children who had the full rights of the family. And there were slaves who were different than what we think of when we think of slaves. It wasn't like 19th century race-based cruelty slavery. It would have been more like, um, like a British nanny, right? Like lives in the house, takes the benefits of the house, works for the family, but is treated like basically family. But then below the slaves were the hired servants. These were people who didn't live in the house. They were more like mercenaries or day laborers, you might say. Um, The the head of the household would hire these people, bring them in, have them do a job, and, and then send them home. And that's what the son is asking for. Now, if you were the father and you had given your son all this wealth and he had gone and squandered it, would you offer him a job? No, you'd you'd probably tell him to get lost. Go figure it out yourself. I, I gave you all that wealth. 
I'm not giving you another break. Well, let's see what happens. So he gets up and, and goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Well, that doesn't sound like how you or I would react, does it? Filled with compassion, filled with the strong emotion of of love and pity and mercy on a person. Like, to understand how much the son had hurt this, this father, you probably need to be a person from a shame and honor culture. We don't have that really in Canada in the 21st century. We're not a shame and honor culture. Uh, Some of you who maybe are immigrants or second generation immigrants from from a shame and honor culture, you maybe get this a little bit better than most of us. But the shame that he had brought on his family, it it would have destroyed the man's reputation in the community. If you want to understand maybe just a little bit of how this father was feeling, think back to middle school or early high school when shame and honor was the currency, when what somebody said good or bad about you could make or break your reputation for a semester or for a year or for multiple years, that's the kind of culture they lived in with adult consequences. That's what that son had done. And and yet when he comes back, the father feels compassion for him. So much compassion that he's actually willing to disgrace himself. The text tells us that he ran to his son. In that culture, men did not run. Children ran. Sometimes women ran. But the patriarch of a family would never run because he would have to raise up his robe to expose his legs, which would have been shameful in their culture. And yet he was willing to do it. He was willing to pick up his robe and sprint towards this son who had taken not just money, but reputation. Amazing love. Can you imagine? Being that son, seeing your father, wondering what he's thinking, wondering, wondering what he's going to do, muttering over your lines to yourself, okay, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy. And then to have that father run towards you and wrap his arms around you and fall on your neck and kiss you in love. What an amazing counterintuitive feeling. The text continues, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he starts his lines, right? He puts the PowerPoint up and says, here's the situation, dad. I messed up. I'm no longer worthy. But the father is having none of it, right? The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He doesn't wait to bless this son again. To put a robe on a man who was nearly naked is, first of all, kind, but in their culture, it meant more. In our culture, we sort of have a a concept of what you wear defines your status in the community, right? If you're wearing the right brands and people look at you as somebody of status that was maximized in their culture, if you were wearing a nice robe, it showed that you were not just somebody with resources, but somebody who was important. And the best robe would have been the one that was reserved for the father of the family. This man was bringing his own robe and putting it on this son, putting sandals on his feet so that he can be clothed. And then he also says, put a ring on his finger. This isn't like your Bruno Mars pinky ring. This is like the family signet ring, like the ring that you can put into the hot wax to mark something with the family's authority, 
He wasn't just welcomed back into the family as somebody who could stay for a while or live in the house. He was given the full rights of a son. Everything he was before restored, maybe even more so, as the father put his own robe on him. The father continues, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost, he was lost, and is found. So they began to celebrate. The, uh, the fattened calf would have been maybe the most expensive thing in the house. Because meat was already at a premium in their culture. You didn't eat meat with every meal. To have any meat at all was special. But to have the fattened calf would have been like a once-in-a-decade party. Like, think wedding celebration level of good food and happiness and, and drinking and celebration. Like, this wouldn't have been just the family. The father would have brought the whole community around to eat from the fattened calf. This was the best party the father could throw. For his son, he thought, was as good as dead, but now is alive again. So, what is Jesus trying to teach us? Well, to get our minds in the space of Jesus telling this parable again, remember that he's been talking to two groups of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this first part of his parable of the two sons is directed towards those sinners and those tax collectors, those we would call the lost. And what he's trying to communicate is some good news and some bad news to each group of people. So, the bad news for those sinners and tax collectors, if you're taking notes with us, is the next fill in the blank. That we naturally want God's things, but we don't want God. Think through that younger son's attitude, right? He didn't want the father. He wanted him as, well, dead so that he could have his money, so that he could spend his wealth, so that he could do whatever he wanted. And isn't that the trajectory of the human heart? We want God's things, but we don't want God. I mean, think about the the hundreds of thousands, millions of people out there today who are enjoying God's blessings. They're enjoying the air they breathe, the water they drink, the food they eat, the clothes they wear, the wealth that they have accumulated, houses, homes, relationships, safety in this country. They're enjoying all of it, but they don't want God. They are the lost, we would call them. But it isn't just them out there. It's sometimes us in here, isn't it? We want God's things, but we don't want God. Whether it's just the basic lack of thankfulness that many of us exhibit in our lives. Like we eat or we drink or we, or we sleep well or we stay safe or, or we have family or friends and, and very often we spend days, maybe weeks, maybe even months without thanking God for those things. We want God's things, but we don't want God. Maybe it's prioritizing those things over God. Like rather than in church, it's sleep, or it's work, or it's sports. We want God's things, but we, we don't want God. Maybe it's during your week. You'd rather relax and enjoy a beverage 
or a TV show than, than spend time with God. We want God's things, but we don't want God. See, by our nature, we would rather have God keep his distance and we keep his stuff. And you know what the crazy thing is? He'll let us do it. Like, he'll let us enjoy his blessings without enjoying him. He'll be like that father who doesn't beat us up, who doesn't criticize or chastise us. He'll just let us have the stuff and let us go. Now, does he want you to leave? No. Will he push you away? No. But he's willing to do that. And you know why? Because he is so convinced that being with him is so much better than everything else out there that eventually you will come to your senses. Eventually you will wake up to the reality that everything that God has is second to being with him. God doesn't want you to go, but he'll, he'll let you go. And, and if you haven't felt that moment where you've realized that the things that God has are not as good as being with God, it'll happen to you. It happens to every person. Whether it's money or security or acknowledgement or power or success or a relationship, whatever it is that you think, if I have this thing, it'll make me happy. If I have this thing, it'll make me feel okay. Eventually, that thing will fail you. Friends will leave. If you sit around the table with your family, one of you is going to bury all the other ones around that table. Your job, you're only in it until somebody who's better and younger than you comes and does it. Your security is only good until something that is completely out of your control comes in and smashes it. I mean, every one of us at some point smashes into the wall of God's things aren't as good as God. Maybe you've been there. You've raised your face up from the muck of reality and thought to yourself, like that younger son, it's got to be better than this. If you've been there, then maybe you did what the son did. You thought, it's got to be better than this, and so you devised a plan of how to get it to be better than this. Whether by works of your own effort or by maybe going to God and saying, God, I'll, I'll be good. I'll be faithful. I'll be in church. I'll read the Bible. I'll pray. I'll do what is necessary so that you can bless me again. I'm going to spend time in God's stuff so that God will spend time on my stuff. And my life can get better because it's got to be better than this. But that only works for so long. Because God is not in the business of just giving you his stuff. He, he wants you. He, he wants to be with you. And so here's the good news. Despite the fact that we run, despite the fact that we use God's things without wanting God, despite the fact that we will barter with God to try to get good out of him, the good news is that God is running towards you. God isn't concerned with how you've used his things. God is running towards you. God doesn't want to hear your protestations or your bartering. He's running towards you. He doesn't care how long you've been gone or why you left. He's running towards you, willing to disgrace himself like that father raising his robe as he came down from, from heaven into earth as a human being 
to find you. God is running towards you. And he's so gracious as he runs towards you. He's like that father who didn't say, this had better be good. Who didn't say, I'll forgive you if you're sincere about it. Who didn't say, we're going to have a trial period. You can come back into the house and if you're okay, then we'll give you the rights of a son. No, he immediately throws the robe of righteousness around you, brings you into his church, gives you the authority that he gives to the entire church to forgive sins, to receive and administer the sacraments. Like he gives it all to you without you asking. And even if you have the wrong attitude, he gives it to you. You might have come in here today for all the wrong reasons. God doesn't care. He's so happy you're here. In fact, he's been running after you for years to make sure you were here to hear this message today. You're a son. You're a daughter. Full stop. But that's not the end of the parable, is it? Jesus' parable continues. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Excuse me. So his father went out and pleaded with him. So there's another son, an older brother. And this older brother sees that the younger brother, who has forfeited all of his father's goodness and has done more than enough to earn himself punishment, is back and being treated like a celebrity. But take this a step farther for this older brother, because now the two-thirds, the double portion of his father's inheritance that is still in his father's possession is being used on this younger brother. Dad, that's my stuff. That's the stuff you saved for my inheritance, and you're using it on this guy? I mean, I have been in the field slaving. That's what he says, doesn't he? He answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he says sarcastically, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And you know, by every system of thought, he's right. He's got an airtight argument. Anywhere you go in the world, this makes sense to people. You do bad things, you get bad. You do good things, you get good. If you're faithful and hardworking, you get rewarded. That's what everyone thinks, regardless of religion or no religion, work or no work, family, no family. That's what everyone thinks, except Christianity. Christianity is the only system of thought that thinks differently. Because it's not concerned with good behavior or bad behavior. It's concerned with something different. And the father is going to put his finger on it for us. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad 
because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the thing the father wants more than good behavior is his sons. He wants to be with them and and no behavior, good or bad, is going to change that for him. I mean, he's essentially saying to this older brother, look, the good things that you've done for me, they're so nice, but I don't care. Like, your hard work is great, but it doesn't count for anything. All I want is to be with you. And your younger brother, he ran away from that, and I didn't have him. He was like dead to me, lost, but now he's alive. Now he's found, he's back, and I'm so overjoyed, but I'm, I'm worried because you're outside the party. You stepped away from me in my moment of greatest joy, and I'm worried, older son. Have I lost you? Well, this part of the parable is for the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And again, Jesus has some good news and some bad news for them. The bad news, if you're taking notes with us, is your next fill in the blank. We have a lot of the wrong righteousness. If you're a person who puts hope in the fact that you are good, if you're a person who puts security in the fact that you're mostly pulling it off, that you've been faithful, that you've been hardworking, that you've been here for years or decades, you've been a Christian for your whole life, that you're kind to people, your marriage hasn't fallen apart, your kids are pretty well behaved. If any of that, you feel, gives you any sort of standing before God, it doesn't. God doesn't care. That's not what he wants. What he wants is to be with you And so the good news, if you're taking notes with us, is that your works count for nothing. And if that grinds you a little bit, if that doesn't sit well on your ears, then maybe you identify with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Like if I can stand up here and say, the years that you've been a Christian, the years that you've been faithful in church attendance, the amount you read your Bible or pray or share your faith or the good works that you perform day in and day out count for nothing. If I can say that and, and that doesn't bother you, then maybe you understand grace. But if it does, then maybe you're a lot like the older son. See, self-righteousness is allergic to Grace. It can't stand the presence of grace because grace messes up its categories. It makes mincemeat of righteousness. It destroys all of our self-salvation projects. It makes the slave into a son, the whore into a bride, the criminal into a loved member of the family. There may be no greater example of how the self-righteous, sinful nature hates grace uh, than a a movie based on a musical that maybe you've seen, Les Miserables. I owe another pastor for this illustration, but I think it's absolutely perfect. Two of the main characters in the movie, depicted here, Russell Crowe and and Hugh Jackman, are Jean Valjean on your right and Inspector Javert on your left. Inspector Javert's whole purpose in the play is to catch Jean Valjean for the uh, crimes he believes he's committed. 
But there's a point in the musical where Jean Valjean has the chance to kill Javert, to get him out of his life so that he'll never be caught for the crimes he's committed, and he gives him mercy. He doesn't kill Inspector Javert. He gives him grace. And Inspector Javert cannot stand it. There's a song that he sings in the musical, and I just want to read you the lyrics to the song to give you a picture of how the sinful nature sees grace. Javert sings, Who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have caught me in a trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate, wipe out the past, and wash me clean off the slate. All it would take was the flick of his knife, vengeance was his, and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the dead of a thief. Damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase. I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There is nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. And my thoughts fly apart. Can this man be believed? Shall his sins be forgiven? Shall his crimes be reprieved? And must I now begin to doubt who never doubted all these years? My heart is stone, and it still trembles. The world I have known is lost in shadow. Is he from heaven or from hell? And does he know that granting me my life today, this man has killed me even so? I am reaching, but I fall, and the stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can turn. There is no way to go on. And then Inspector Javert kills himself because he couldn't stand the idea of grace. He was an embodiment of the older brother. To see God liberally spreading grace on people who didn't deserve it, and yet he couldn't stand it. I've said before, and I'll say it again, that the the difference between Christians and everyone else is that while everyone is willing to say that I have done bad things that deserve to be confessed of and maybe even punished, just like Christians are, Christians are willing to say, even the good things that I do don't count for anything. It is purely 100% God to me, arrow pointing down, no questions asked, one-way love. The main character in this story is Jesus, and he's dying for me. So, before we land the plane, I want to give you four drive-home questions. And those five, four drive-home questions are for the older brothers in us. I think at every time we are both younger brother and older brother, but when you get in the Christian church and you're here for a while, the older brother side of you starts to grow. And so I would love for us to challenge the older brother self-righteous parts of our heart with these four questions. First of all, will I go in? The older brother, he stood outside the party while everyone celebrated the younger brother. Will you be like the older brother, or will you go in? You know, the interesting thing about this parable is we never hear the resolution, do we? The, the father gives his plea to his son. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and that's the end. We never hear the brother's answer. We never find out if he comes into the party. And I believe that is Jesus' perfect, brilliant storytelling. As if all the characters in the story suddenly turn their eyes towards you. 
and see if you'll go in. So will you go in? I want you cross life to think long and hard about this. Because if we're a church that's going to spread the gospel, then people are going to come in. And they're going to be different people. They're going to be new people. Are we going to celebrate that? Or are we going to be sad that we're changing or the dynamics are shifting or, or that different things are happening? That the good old days seem to be slipping away? Are we going to look at people who don't deserve God's grace and be excited by the fact that God is consistently, constantly gracious to those people? The second question, do I delight in God? I want you to realize that ultimately in this parable, what Jesus is trying to get our hearts around is a delight in him first and foremost. Do I delight in God? Or does God just make me happy sometimes? Does God just make me feel peaceful sometimes? Is he good when I need him? Or does every moment of my life revolve around him? When I think of him smiling at me constantly because of my baptism, am I overjoyed that I'm called his child? Does the very thought of being in his presence excite my emotions? Or am I more viscerally reacting to other people delighting in God and well, me not getting what I think I deserve. It is interesting to me that in many churches, emotional reactions happen because of God's things, but not because of God. The possessions that God gives to a family or to a church We'll yell about those things. We'll write strongly worded emails about those things. But when it comes to God's grace, very often we, well, we treat it with a meh. If we're going to be a church that calls ourselves Christian, then we are going to delight in Jesus Christ. And I have an except for you if you want to learn a little bit more of how to delight in Jesus Christ. A, a man that you know, a pastor that you know, Pastor Mike Novotny, uh, wrote a book recently. It's called Three Words That Can Change Your Life. This book talks about this topic of delighting in God more than anything else. I believe that if you read it, it will change the way you think about church. It'll change the way you think about Christianity, and I'm going to make you an offer. This book is normally $20, but if I can get 10 people who want to buy it with me, we can get a bulk rate, and I'll pay for half of the cost. It'll cost you $8. Will you join me on this journey of learning how to delight in God? If so, on the back of your Connect card, just write the, the, book of, the name of the book or tell me I want a copy. If I can get 10 people who want to read this book with me, I believe it'll change the culture of our church. Do I delight in God? Third, do I love the younger brothers? I think it's no secret that there have been people who have left our church. And some of them have left for older brother reasons. Some of them have left for younger brother reasons. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Do we love them like the Father loves them? Are we willing to let them go? Are we willing to say, look, it's between you and Jesus. We're here, we're glad to serve you and love you and embrace you and bring you into the family. But if you want to go, that's, that's your business with God. I think very often it's easy to get angry, to get hurt, right? To feel that they're insulting us as they walk out the door. That's not how the father treats the younger son. 
I hope that as those people leave, they remember us as a place of grace, a place not consumed with the law and, and how to be good, because just like the younger son came back to the father because he believed that somewhere in his heart his father was gracious, I hope those people come back because they believe somewhere in their heart that this church is full of grace. If it's not, we need to repent of that and, and hope that God brings them back for another reason. But if, when, some of them come back, I hope we treat them like the father. And when they walk back in the door, we don't make mention of why they left or how long they've been gone or the things that they said or did on the way out. We just embrace them. In fact, I would be overjoyed as a pastor if as soon as one of those folks who has left comes back, we throw a party. Like, actually throw a party. Let's do it. Because that's what the Father does for us. Last thing then, do I see Jesus? It's pretty easy as you read the parable to identify many of the main characters, right? The father is God, the younger son is the lost, the older son is the self-righteous Christian. You could even go a little bit farther and say the man who gave the younger son a job is like all the self-salvation projects we have out there that we try to work on to make ourselves feel significant. But do you see Jesus in this parable? He's the fattened calf. The one who was killed to bring back the younger son, to celebrate God's grace. The one who gave his life and lets us eat his flesh and drink his blood for the forgiveness of sins like we are going to do in just a couple minutes. But I don't just wonder if you see Jesus in the parable, I wonder if you see Jesus every day. If you see, first of all, yourself as a sinner and then Jesus as a savior. If every day you're meditating on that, if every day you're reading about that in your scriptures, it'll become more and more real to you and you will become less and less of an older brother. So today, if your older brother has been pricked, if he's been exposed, then repent and come forward for the feast. Because the Lord is celebrating younger brothers like all of us today by giving us his forgiveness. No questions asked, no deservedness necessary. It's all grace and all for you. I pray that that breaks through your categories. I pray that it rewires your soul so that grace is your operating system. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as both younger and older brothers. We pray first that you would forgive us for the times where we have treated others with self-righteousness and for the times where we have taken your things and enjoyed them more than we enjoy you. We trust your forgiveness for those things. We trust that your Holy Spirit will work in us so that we can leave those things and we can delight in you daily and then bring more younger brothers to know your grace. I ask these things in your name. Amen.